It's a terrible system. <laughs> and the tipping. And the tipping. Let's let's rally the troops together. Oh man, it is stressful. I'm getting stressed out just thinking about it. Welcome to Pennies and Popcorn, the show about real money lessons from the world of TV and movies. With your hosts, Carla Cash and Robert Davidson, a couple of personal finance geeks and movie lovers. Hey everyone, welcome to today's show. We will be discussing Hulu's most successful comedy to date, Only Murders in the Building. Yeah, it's such a crazy title. When I heard that, I was like, what is this going to be? But it's a really fun show. I enjoyed it. There were moments at the beginning where I felt like the acting was kind of like wooden and just a little off, but it got so much better. And it's a it's a fun ride. I, I would recommend it to folks. Yeah, it stars uh, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and Selena Gomez. I have to admit, when I heard that Martin Short was in it, I was a little bit reluctant. I've seen enough of his work to know that sometimes he's a bit over the top, <laughs> but I thought he did a really good job in this. Yeah, he plays Oliver and he's, you know, got a lot of depth to his character and sometimes he's likable, sometimes he's not, but he does a really good job. Yeah, it wasn't just this over the top, trying too hard, silly, lowbrow humor that sometimes he brings to the table. I thought I was really impressed. Yeah. So we should say this is going to be a mostly spoiler-free episode. So we'll do a brief plot summary for you guys. But in a nutshell, it's a whodunit. And we are not going to tell you whodunit. So don't uh, don't tune out if you haven't seen it yet, because we'll have lots of great money lessons to learn um, without giving away the big spoiler of the show. Yeah, that's right. And uh, season two for the show comes out on June 28th. So it's right around the corner. If you were a fan of the first season, more will come here in the next few months. Yeah. So what did you think, Robert? Did you like this show? I did. Yeah, I thought it was really good. I mean, I really enjoyed Selena Gomez back in her Barney days. <laughs> what a talent. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I'd not really seen her in either of her kids focused work beforehand in uh Barney or Wizards of Waverly Place, I think was her other program. Yeah, we're a little too old for that. She's she's definitely younger than we are, so we kind of missed the boat on that. But Oh, Carla, she's not just younger than we are. She's like she's younger than everyone on the show. She's 29 right now. Martin Short is 72, and Steve Martin is 76. Yeah, it's uh, quite the age gap. Thankfully, it's not a romance, so that age gap is uh, nothing to be concerned about, folks. No, like it's interesting. <laughs> I thought it was great that people of these very different generations were able to bond together over a mutual interest and have a lot of fun together. Yeah. But I like the show. I definitely had a fun time with it. It was, I agree with you. The first couple episodes were a little bit slow. They didn't quite grab my attention, but as it went on, there was enough of a development that I was really interested to see where it was going to go. And a little disappointed when we ran out of episodes. Yeah, it ends in a in a very fun way. There's there's lots of twists and turns. It's a good show. Yeah. So very brief, high level plot summary. Like we already said, it is a whodunit. It's about these three characters: Martin Short, Steve Martin, and Selena Gomez, who live in a very nice building in New York City. The Arconia. Mm-hmm. If and your building has a name, it's pretty swanky, that's right? That's true. <laughs> that's a good indication. Uh, so this is not a spoiler. This happens like in the very beginning of the first episode, there is a murder in their building as the name kind of suggests. And the three of them bond over the fact that they all like the same 
true crime podcast, and they decide to start their own podcast to try and solve the mystery of this murder that took place in their building. Yeah, I think they were considering branching out at a brief point and doing a true crime podcast that goes beyond just the one that they were familiar with. And they decided, no, 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 no. We needed to narrow our scope and only focus on murders in the building. Which is where the name comes from, (laughs) yes. So that's basically all you need to know about the plot for this episode of Pennies and Popcorn. We have a lot of ground to cover today. Lots of money lessons to be learned. Yeah, when you take a full season and distill it to one Pennies and Popcorn episode, it can be tough to fit it all in. There's lots of good stuff. So I think we should go ahead and dive right into our first clip. So this is the three main characters of the show when they're first meeting. Something fishy has just happened in the building and a lot of the residents of the building have been kind of kicked out, asked to leave for this emergency situation, and they're all at a restaurant across the street. So they're getting to know each other. And Steve Martin and Martin Short have some questions for Selena Gomez's character. Who are you? fascinating creature. I mean, we got our places 30 years ago when the Arconia was affordable, but you, would your parents have a place there? Good God, you don't have to answer that, Mabel. I mean, I mean, unless you want to, because I'm also curious. <laughs> so I think the first thing we should talk about here is curiosity about other people's money situations. Oh, I am guilty of this constantly. When I see people everywhere, I wonder, what, what does that person do? Do they have enough money to be driving that car? Do they have enough money to not be wearing those ratty clothes? Whatever it is. Like I, yeah, I, I, this crosses my mind constantly. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm weird about that. When I, when I see people flying first class, I wonder, should they be? Like, how are they affording this? This doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, you and I are very focused on personal finance issues. So I think maybe it's more at the forefront for us than a lot of folks. But I think everybody wonders about this kind of thing, right? When you see somebody who lives in a really fancy house, your first question is immediately, what do they do? How did they get here, right? And sometimes it's because you are maybe a little bit jealous. You want to be where that person is. Other times it's kind of fun to be judgmental and you wonder (laughs) if they're... I'm better than them. Yeah, like are they making poor financial decisions by spending so much to live in this swanky neighborhood or to sit in first class, right? We all have that impulse to be a little bit like questioning, digging, judging about what's going on in other people's financial lives. So is it okay? Is it wrong? (laughs) Should we be ashamed of it? I think it's human and there's probably not much we can do about it, but I do think it's healthy to have kind of a Zen attitude about it. Obviously they call it personal finance for a reason, right? Everyone's financial decisions are personal to them. What you see on the surface is not necessarily indicative of what people have going on in the background, right? People could have inherited wealth. People could have retired from a a lucrative job and now they're doing something that makes a lot less money. Um, You just never know what people have going on. So it's never a good idea to judge a book by its cover. I think that's generally good advice. Yeah, it is. But I mean, so this situation here, we already talked about it, right? Selena Gomez is 29, right? She's 40 plus years younger than her co-stars in this movie and or this television program. 
and they moved into this building 30 years ago into the the fancy arconia i think it is totally reasonable to wonder mike like wow she must be doing really really well yeah how, how did this happen i want to hear the fun story yeah no it would be a fascinating it's not story. always judgment sometimes it's <laughs> sometimes it's friendly uh support that's true yeah she could have you know created a successful app or been a successful music artist like selena gomez was in real life one never knows so let's talk about just how successful she would have to be to live in this fancy building because holy cow, it is nice. So the building that we see in the show is a real building in New York City. It's on the Upper West Side. In real life, it's not called the Arconia. It's called the Bel Nord. That sounds even fancier. It is very, very posh. So I think we're not super familiar with New York, but the Upper West Side, I know enough to know that that's generally like the poshest area. But on top of that, this is a really especially nice building and an already especially nice area. So Yeah, I was going to say, Steve Martin is a TV character, right? He's a retired TV actor mm-hmm. who had a long, successful career. Martin Short is a Broadway director who had some success uh, on the on the big stage. And... Yeah, like it, it's it's not nothing to, to be living there. Sting lives there. That's so true. <laughs> yeah, that's an indication that it's probably a pretty pricey place to live, which it is. So the real life Bell Nord was built originally in 1908, which makes it a pre-war apartment, which is a very, you know, like well-to-do thing in New York City. Um, they revamped the entire thing in 2018. So it's now like all super updated and even fancier than before. The apartments in that building sell for between $4 million and $12 million. Okay. Yeah. So Selena Gomez would have to be doing all right at, in her late 20s to, to pull that off. Huh? Yeah. It is a very expensive place to live. So let me give you a few more details about just how pricey it is to live there. So you've got the upfront cost. I looked now. Right now, the cheapest available apartment that you can buy is a two-bedroom, two-bath, I think about 1,600 square feet. That's going for $4.15 million. And on top of that, they also tell you online how much the common charges, which are kind of like the building fees, come with each apartment. It's uh, on a per square foot basis. It's about 89 cents per square foot per month. So you're looking at like $14.40 a month in just your building fees. On top of that, the building also tells you that you're going to be on the hook for monthly real estate taxes, which apparently are astronomical. According to the building's website, they are quoted for this particular apartment that I looked at at about $2,500 per month. So let's break this down a little bit. So if you were purchasing this apartment for $4.15 million at today's mortgage interest rates, which are about 5.5%, I know they've gone up so fast, it's ridiculous. But at about five and a half percent, if you're putting down 20%, that means you're putting down $830,000. That leaves you with 3.3 million in a mortgage. So at a 5.5% interest rate, the monthly payment for $3.3 million is just a hair over $19,000 a month. So you're looking at $19,000 a month for just your mortgage payment. And then on top of that, you have the building fees or common charges. And then on top of that, you have your real estate taxes. So all in all, you're looking at $22,940 
per month. I'm okay to round that up to 23. <laughs> I mean, that is just an astronomically high figure that such a tiny percentage of human beings could afford. Well, yeah. I mean, the $800,000 in cash that you need to have for a 20% down payment is an absurd figure for just about everybody. Yeah, that's already a disqualifier. And then after $800,000 down, you're on the hook for $23,000 a month. Whew, that is quite the pretty penny. Okay, I think their curiosity is warranted. <laughs> yeah, it's a valid question. How the hell are you doing this? It's pretty crazy. So from Steve Martin and Martin Short's perspective, they're right. Real estate prices were much more reasonable for them like 30 years ago. So real estate in New York, we all just inherently know is astronomically high, but it has gone up so very quickly. So just to give you kind of a, a feel for just how fast it's gone up, in the 1970s, the average price per square foot was $45 in New York City. By the 1980s, it had gone up to $250 per square foot. By the 1990s, you're looking at about five to $600 per square foot. And today, the average is about $1,200 per square foot. At a place like the Bell Nord, you're looking at something like $2,500, $2,600 per square foot. Okay, that's, um, that's a bit of a, a jump from the 70s. Yeah, it's gone up just a tiny bit. So in the mid-90s, when these guys would have been buying an apartment, it's possible they could have been buying the apartment for somewhere like right around seven figures, like roughly a million dollars. Now, if they're buying the really, really big and fancier apartments, they would have been paying a lot more than that. But definitely no one was paying $12 million for an apartment back then. So I think this astronomical rise in prices that we're talking about in New York City is indicative of what we're seeing across the country, right? Home prices are up everywhere. And one interesting thing that I saw is that a lot of people are apparently turning to this tiny house movement in order to, you know, ride this out and maybe wait and to buy a bigger house until price, housing prices come back down a little bit, or maybe embrace the minimalist lifestyle and live in a smaller house forever. Well, I get it. I mean, the when I look at the housing inventory that we have in the United States, I feel like we've done a dismal job of building what I would call a starter home, right? We lived in Dallas for a long time, and in the DFW Metroplex, it's very hard to find a new home build that's smaller than 2,500 square feet. And you can live quite comfortably in a house that's, you know, 1,500 square feet, right? That'd be wonderful for many people in many situations. And there's very limited inventory like that. So I think the tiny house movement is maybe a bit smaller than what I would suggest for a lot of folks. But yeah, there's not a lot of good new properties available today that are in a size range that would have a price range that would fit for a whole lot of people. I think we struggle a lot with some of the urban and suburban density challenges too. Mm -hmm. It's really a struggle to keep up the land that is ideal for housing in places where people really want to be, whether that's New York or the San Francisco Bay Area or Southern California or, heck, even where we are in places in Colorado, there's, there isn't sufficient land available where you want to be to house all the people who might want to live there and without it turning into the gigantic urban sprawl that you see in like the Dallas-Fort Worth metropolitan area. I think 
we really need to look carefully as a society about suburban housing density. I think everybody likes the idea of their nice large home with the white picket fence in the suburbs, but it's not very sustainable. I think it's going to lead to some sort of boom or bust type situations in cities where they build up and build up and build out really, really far. Uh, and it, it creates this, this crazy urban sprawl that's not super sustainable in the city center anymore. And then all of a sudden you have these little micro areas. I remember listening to a Freakonomics podcast about Frisco, Texas, like a, a far-flung suburb of Dallas, and it's becoming its own sort of minor hub. I think things like that happen all over the place. I also think places where you had to have bought decades ago to be able to afford it because housing prices have just shot up more than the rate of wages or inflation or anything else, they run into the risk of just sort of becoming an old dying city, right? Only older people can live there. Very few younger people can move in and be permanent residents. And you start to have this weird age gap where suddenly all, all of the people who live there are not the kinds of people who made that city the lifeblood of what it was when it first started as their lives have changed and evolved. And I, I don't think it's a sustainable practice for long. So I don't know. I kind of think we need more urban type density in suburban areas if we really want to keep some of these high cost of living places special and unique. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable solution to it. Um, I don't know. There's so many question marks about where the housing market is going to go, especially just with the last few years. You know, things have shot up so, so quickly. Everyone's head is just spinning. I mean, you talk about people wishing they'd bought a house decades ago. At this point, people are wishing they bought a house six months ago or a year a year ago. So that pr the prices have just gone up at an unsustainable rate. I'm not sure if we're in for a major correction on that front or what will happen, but it's definitely an interesting time to be shopping for a house, that's for sure. We're grateful all the time that we got this place before prices started rising like crazy. So true. Well, we don't really know much more about Selena Gomez's history here, and you know, it's not important for, for this episode of the podcast, so there you go. What we do know, though, is that Martin Short's character, although he could afford the Arconia 30 years ago when he bought it, he's having a little bit of trouble affording it now. So how's work? Good. It's you know, there's some stuff out there. Yeah? Yeah. Did you uh, get your next project? Well, I, I, I thought I had something, but uh, it just went away. <laughs> so, well, I'm going to need to... Um, Oh, no. You know, I, I, I really did not want this to become a regular thing, but I am strapped. Dad. Honey, I am so close on a few things. Yeah, that's what you said last time. Obviously, it's mortifying coming to you like this. I'm revolted at myself. But... Get any work, you know? I mean, this this is it's been years now, and so I just I need a little help from someone. You have to sell the apartment. I can't do that, Dad. You cannot keep living like this. It's all I have. It's who I am. Yeah, well, obviously it makes me very sad to hear that. So if that wasn't clear, that was Martin Short going and talking to his son 
and asking for money because I think was he like eight months behind on playing his paying his billing dues? Yeah, he's very very behind. Which, as we just heard, according to the real life Belnor, that could be a pretty hefty chunk of change. He could be looking at depending on how big his apartment is, a bare minimum of like fifteen hundred dollars a month. So that's quite the pretty penny if he's behind by eight full months. So you can certainly hear the anxiousness and and sort of shame and awkwardness of going to his child and asking them for money. How do you feel about that, Carla? I would also feel the same. I think the best gift that parents can give their kids is to, you know, be able to stand on their, their own financial feet and not rely on their kids for financial support. But that's a very American way of looking at life. In a lot of other cultures, the kids are just expected to support the parents. I mean, it's just the circle of life, right? When the kids are too young to take care of themselves, the parents step up. And when the parents are too old, the kids step up. So there are cultures that very much have that view. I think it's most famously prominent in a lot of Asian cultures. I actually found an article about um, a law that was passed in Singapore that would allow parents to um, sue their children effectively for like a monthly stipend, effectively like parent support. Wow. Yeah, which um, was not a very popular law, but there were a lot of parents who took advantage of it. So it's a very American way of thinking to be like, just, you know, every generation takes care of themselves. That's how it is. Well, I have to admit, I'm an American, and I like that model, right? I, I don't like the idea that you would become dependent upon family to take care of you. Who would want to be a burden like that? I realize it's ex- exceedingly common, and to be fair, it's a very modern thing to not have that, right? It's very normal for all of human history, basically, until the last, I don't know, couple hundred years where somebody might have the ability to accumulate enough wealth so that they could then take care of themselves, and not rely on the, I don't know, hunter-gatherer team of family members to help get them through their golden years. Yeah. Well, I think what's particularly frustrating to the son in this scene that we just heard is that his dad is living this fabulous lifestyle, acting as though he does have a lot of wealth, and relying on his son to continue funding that lifestyle. So we just talked about the real-life Belnord and how much these apartments are worth, We don't know how big or how lavish Martin Short's apartment in particular is, whether it's on the $4 million end of the spectrum, the $12 million end of the spectrum. It seems less nice than stings. (laughs) But anywhere in that spectrum is going to be enough for you to comfortably retire on. Even in New York City, if you're just willing to downsize and move to like a less posh area and not have that be your identity, as he talks about. So if I were the son... I would absolutely say, uh-uh, dad, this is crazy. You would cut off your own father? <laughs> this particular father, I 100% would. It's not like he's, you know, struggling to make ends meet in any kind of reasonable lifestyle situation. This guy is just living high on the hog and sitting on an asset that would probably take care of him and like 10 other people <laughs> if he would just sell it and like downsize to a lower cost of living area, or even just like probably 30 blocks away, he could find an apartment for way less money and he could pocket all that equity, which he no doubt has given that he bought it such a long time ago. It's probably fully paid off. 
And even if it weren't fully paid off, the equity would have gone up like crazy given the appreciation that we talked about. So he is sitting on a gold mine and he just is like crossing his arms like a toddler, like, no, I'm not going to sell it. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to make other people pay for my fancy lifestyle. Well, I 100% agree with you, Carla. I think the kid has a very mature outlook about his dad's immaturity. The parents should definitely liquidate that asset, take some of those proceeds, and put them towards a new place to live and the ability to manage his living expenses completely on his own without needing to bother his children for that. I, I certainly think it is absolutely the right thing to do to help out your family when they are in a at a point of desperation. I think that's common. That's happened for generations in parts of my family. I think it's very, very normal. At the same time, you shouldn't go do that like just with a handout every month because you can't make ends meet because of your own life choices. That that seems pretty terrible to do to somebody else. It's not as though Martin Short is lost his mental faculties and no longer has the ability to make good decisions and is reliant on someone else for basic caregiving necessities. It's 100% just ego and having his personality intertwined with where he lives, which is quite normal. I think a lot of people, oh, I live in the fancy neighborhood and that's who I am and that's who I always will be. Or I live in a poor neighborhood. I live in a trailer park and that's who I am and that's all I'll ever be. I think a lot of people see themselves through the lens of their domicile. Yeah, where we live, at least in American culture, is such a huge part of where we fall on the socioeconomic ladder and just how we see ourselves in the grand scheme of American society. So I understand where he's coming from in some ways. I'm sure it's a really tough pill to swallow for him to say, I'm not directing Broadway hits anymore. I can't afford this lifestyle anymore. But at some point, we all have to face reality, and he's not able to make these hits anymore. Apparently, he's not able to make much of anything. So that's the situation that he's in, and he's got to adjust his finances to that new reality. Agreed. So let's go ahead and move on to our third clip. So we've mentioned that this is a murder mystery, right? There was the man who was killed in the Arconia building. His name was Tim Kono. And so they're putting together the podcast trying to solve the mystery of Tim's murder. And one of the things they do is go talk to one of the building workers to try to get some inside information about that. And they have a pretty interesting conversation as they go down to chat with this woman. Okay, remember, Ursula always had a side hustle she's working. So try not to sign up for any kind of subscription box, timeshare, or complimentary mammogram. They're incredibly difficult to cancel. I thought her name was Aurora. How do you not know anyone? So, 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 so do you put Aurora on her envelope when you tip at Christmas? I don't tip. What? I think it's elitist. I send out autographed photos instead. Look, the reason I don't tip is out of respect for you. Please, don't respect me so much, okay? Ursula, please, I, I would love to look at those complaints about Tim Kono. Can't we work something out here? Well, if you really want them. Got milk? It's a beverage and a business. First case is 250. Buy two and I'll throw in the file. Buy three and I'll fill you in on the stuff that was too juicy to write down. <laughs> Well, all of you who listen to this program regularly have an idea of where Carla and I land on MLM schemes like gut milk. (laughs) 
So this, I assume, is a fictional product that's featured in the TV show that she's extorting these people into purchasing from her. So if you haven't listened to it yet, definitely go back and check out our Lula Rich episode where we talk all about MLMs, multi-level marketing companies like Lula Row and Mary Kay and Amway and many companies like them. Um, but yeah, just to briefly touch on it here, she obviously is having such a hard time selling this product that she's having to effectively like... Yeah, if she's extorting these guys. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll let you have this information if you take this product off my hands. Mm-hmm. What's, so, what's crazy, though, is they like the gut milk, right? They're <laughs> drinking it constantly throughout the rest of the series. Like, I, I think... Now, maybe Martin Short's drinking it just because he has no other options. Like, he can't afford food or something. I don't know. That is a possibility. But they, they seem like they actually genuinely enjoy the gut milk despite their disdain for it. Yeah. So, I guess not all MLM products are inherently awful. But it does seem like if it was that good, they should be able to market it some other way besides multi-level marketing. Anyway, so <laughs> setting the gut milk aside... Um, there's also some other really interesting things going on in this clip, primarily about tipping. So Steve Martin's character says that he does not tip because it's out of respect for the other people. He thinks it's elitist to just hand people money as though they are beneath him. What are your thoughts on that? Well, in some cases, he's he's right. I mean, our tipping culture in the U.S., one, it freaking sucks. Okay, I hate it. It drives me berserk because I don't understand it and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And I feel compelled in an effort to avoid being rude to over tip in the situations where I know I'm supposed to tip. And I probably look like a total clown on the situations where I'm just oblivious to the fact that I'm expected to tip. I freaking hate it. It's stupid. Let's fix it. Let's all band together and get rid of tipping. Why can't we just bake in the cost of things into the price, right? And then we can allow the owners of businesses or managers or whatever to make sure that they are hiring staff who are competent who care about providing a friendly, wonderful experience as a service, and they can manage their staff accordingly rather than them being quasi-compensated based on the quality of their service, right? The idea of a tip, I think at some point, was to show some gratitude or appreciation for a job well done. But in today's world, in a lot of cases, it doesn't even translate to that, right? When I think about, maybe I'm just a horrible person, but when when it comes to going out to a restaurant, very rarely do I swing the amount of my tip in a meaningful amount based on the quality of my dining experience. I just sort of think of it as like a mandatory tax. No, I think that makes you a good person because you always tip pretty generously, especially at restaurants, wait stuff. I There are situations where I, I think... I'm making it rain, guys. <laughs> but you're doing that even if the person is just, you know, average, which... I I think is what's expected. I think that's what you should be doing because the way the system is right now, their compensation is just pitiful without the tips. So we have to be tipping pretty generously in order for these people to make a living wage. Yeah, I agree. Like it's our responsibility. And when you go out to eat a meal somewhere nice, uh, you need a tip. It's expected. And if you can't afford the tip, you can't afford to eat there, period. Like that's the way it is. And that's the way everyone needs to look at it in the United States. But it would be really great if we could get rid of that. And just, I would love it if taxes and tips can all be rolled into the price of things and so that there's no like surprise adders at the end. Well, what's the local tax rate here? Does it apply to everything or only certain things? Like, It's stupid. I really hate it. Why can't the owners of the establishments just tell you how much stuff costs? 
it would make life so much easier. Yeah, it's definitely frustrating. It's something that I do think other countries do a little bit better with. Like the price you see is the price you're going to pay. I mean, even at a grocery store, you know, you go to the grocery store and you have to know in your head how much the local taxes are, how much the state taxes are, and like get your calculator out in order to figure out how much you actually need in order to leave the store with that item that you want. So it's definitely a little frustrating that we can't I, just I suppose it. I'm talking about, I want the price to be clear. Um, I'm not a fan of cultures where haggling over every little thing is the deal either. I want there to be an advertised price that has everything included and it's not a price that gouges you and only the idiot tourists pay that amount and all the locals haggle it down and pay half of it or two thirds of that price or whatever it is. So whatever country has all of that, let's emulate their system. <laughs> yeah, no, well, some people like haggling. I'm personally not a fan. I'd like it's to just assist. so awkward. Yeah. I mean, let's let's negotiate on what matters, not the price of bananas. <laughs> do you have a list of people that we should be tipping? So I do. I, I think we all know about the people in our day-to-day lives, right? When you get a meal served to you, you're expected to tip. If you get a ride in a taxi, you're expected to tip the driver. If you go get your hair cut or your nails done or some sort of personal service like this, you're supposed to tip unless the service is being provided by the owner of the establishment, in which case it is considered rude. Yeah. So don't tip the proprietor. I learned that from Gilmore Girls. Yeah. It's kind of a weird thing because how are you supposed to know in all cases who the owner proprietor person is? It's so kind of weird. Uh, I mean, in Gilmore Girls, it was clear because it was Luke Steiner and the owner was named Luke. But other than that, it's, it's very hard to know. Agreed. Um, I think the other thing here, so, so there are many places where it's obvious, but there's many places where it's not obvious. Like anyone who provides you a service, like a personalized experience, are they supposed to get a tip? Are they not supposed to get a tip? Uh, I mean, there's the easy path that if there is a tip line, you just pay by credit card. If there's a tip line, fill it in. <laughs> um, that can be really frustrating. I think I've been to like a gas station or something and I've seen a tip line there. I'm like, seriously, for my self-service fuel like what i don't understand yeah anyway when you have someone who provides you services over an extended period that's where it gets weird right there are people who you go to perhaps regularly that should you tip them or should you not tip them like what if you have a babysitter like a regular babysitter that you call on periodically do you need to tip them something extra on top of the wages that you guys negotiated for this you know, one-on-one service that they're going to provide for your children? Or do you tip them at the end of the year? I, what I've read is that the, the etiquette says if you have a regular sitter, you should probably tip them at the end of the year, the equivalent of one night's services. And that's actually kind of a common amount that's recommended to tip people who are regular service people for you as an individual over the course of a year. Interesting. So if you have like a lawn guy, or somebody who is a snow shoveler for you. The polite thing to do, the the best etiquette thing to do. Oh, and I'm completely like unaware and clueless about this stuff before I started looking into it. But the expectation is uh, you're supposed to tip them about one service's worth of compensation as an extra bonus at the end of the year. Well, now, to be fair, you and I don't really have people like that. We we shovel our own snow and we do our own yard work and we... Yeah, the neighbors can tell. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get haircuts pretty infrequently. We don't have like 
any kind of regular personal service that's provided to us. We don't, but lots of people do. And these guys in the Arconia do, right? They have a doorman. They have uh, Ursula, Aurora, whatever her name is, right? I think she's she's probably in the mailroom. It's Ursula Robert. Pay attention. Yeah. I thought you were going to say what we should talk about is how important it is to actually care about the people who are serving you and learn their names and build a relationship with them rather than just treating them as some servant who is nameless and faceless and just exists to you know, support your every whim. But apparently that wasn't where you wanted to take this segment. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I think if you have some regular service person like that, it that's the nice thing to do. The challenge though is when there's not a fee for it, like Ursula in their building, they don't pay a fee. They, they pay their building fees and she's part of the, the staff. I guess you, I, I think you're expected to tip somewhere in the like 50 to a hundred dollar range for that sort of thing. Postal workers, delivery people, mm-hmm. a lot of them have rules against accepting cash tips, but it's, it's often thought to be a kind thing to do to offer a gift in the, you know, just under $20, like clearly under $20 range, like some baked goods. If everyone gave their mailman baked goods in December, I don't know how they're going to be able to walk around in January <laughs> uh, or, or eat it all over the holidays or something. But I think it's a common thing to do uh, for, for them. Garbage people, right? So there is like a waste delivery team. And usually it's the same people week after week doing the same route in your neighborhood. It's often considered nice to go slip them a an envelope with 20 to $50 in it at the end of the year saying, thank you for doing such a great job of coming by and removing your rubbish. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, tips are a show of generosity. They're very kind. They're, as we heard from Ursula, not Aurora, in the clip, like she appreciates getting them. I think everyone does, right? We all like money. This is something we all have in common. So it's a a gracious and generous thing to do. I just, the part that, uh, that always gets me about tipping is the fear of offending some people. Like if it was the proprietor of an establishment and you didn't know, or teachers are one that I think is kind of interesting. A lot of people give gifts to their kids' teachers. Gotta get those A's. <laughs> Gotta get those A's. Uh, gift cards or, you know, some sort of baked goods of some sort. I mean, all kinds of things, right? So... That's an interesting one. I think most teachers appreciate that and don't feel offended by it. But if you were to hand them just a straight envelope of cash, I feel like that would be considered a little less okay. I don't know. It's like the etiquette on these things is so touchy sometimes. And I think a small gift, like a personalized gift, is really the best way to do it in a lot of these situations. I mean, I realize most people would rather have money that they can use for the things that they specifically want rather than something that you're guessing that they might want or be happy to have. Yeah, but I mean, cash is king, right? I, I think a lot of teachers really appreciate the gift cards that they get. I know we have some teacher friends, and they all receive a lot of gift cards at the end of their school years, and they have never complained about it to us. So I've always felt like that was, I don't know, it's such a weird thing that gift cards would be okay. A piece of plastic is fine, but like paper cash is somehow considered gauche. I don't know. The world is a crazy place. It makes me think about my work, right? Like after I finish a big project, we install something, we improve some school district or do whatever. It would be the weirdest thing ever if one of our customers was like, Robert, I'm just really grateful for the way that you connected with our, our school district and helped us improve. 
here's a hundred bucks. Like, well, <laughs> what? Like, <laughs> okay. It, but think about it. It would be weird, but also you would have a hundred more dollars in your pocket at the end of the day. Wouldn't you just walk away being like, well, that was kind of odd, but thanks. Like it's at the end of the day, I think getting offended by receiving money is pretty weird. Like someone's trying to be nice to you. Just let it, just accept it and be okay with it. I think if everyone had that attitude, it would be easier to tip. You wouldn't be like, eh, am I going to offend you? I don't know. What do I do here? Like, just be generous with people. And then if you're on the receiving end of it, be gracious about receiving it. And the world would be a better place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If everyone were very kind and, and offered to share their excesses with others, it'd be wonderful. Um, and yeah, in my example, if a school district were giving me money, I'd just say, can I just give this back to you in some other roundabout way for your organization that is always underfunded? But like if you're a mechanic, right? You hire a mechanic, they say it's going to be $1,500 to fix this thing on your car when you get the bill back and it's 1500 bucks, and it was delivered on schedule and everything works the way it was supposed to. Like, does the mechanic... Like you're supposed to give them extra money? <laughs> I would think not in that situation. But why is that any different than the person who cuts your hair? You know... I hate America. <laughs> I guess a lot of it has to do with how much money someone makes, right? Like, I think the the less money you make on an annual basis, the more likely people are to tip you. And that's why people get offended. It's like, oh, you think I need this extra money in order to live and thrive? Yeah, that's so true. It's a terrible system. <laughs> And the tipping, and the tipping. Let's let's rally the troops together. Oh man, it is stressful. I'm getting stressed out just thinking about it. So maybe we should accept the tipping is a landmine filled arena and just move on to our next clip. Okay, let's do it. Okay. So this next one is going to be really fun. I'm excited about it. Um, this next clip is introducing us to a character who you will probably recognize if you are a fan of The Office. She, in the later seasons, plays Holly, who is Michael Scott's uh, love interest later down the road. And she plays the character Jan in this series and does a really great job. So this is our introduction to Jan and what she does for a living. Hello. Hello, lobby? Yes, please. Oh, I see you're a musician. Oh, good eye. I'm actually first chair bassoon in the City Symphony. Mm. First chair, Mabel, she's first chair. I heard. I don't know what that means. Wait a minute. Is that your bassoon I hear playing through the courtyard every night? Oh, I'm sorry. I should close my window. No, it's lovely. I think of it as the sound of the Arconia. Oh, that's really sweet. <laughs> that so, is really sweet. It is very sweet. So uh, as someone who does play an instrument, I play the piano, um, I would really appreciate it if someone said something like that to me because sometimes we do leave the windows open and I do play and I'm always really, really nervous about it. But it's so nice to hear that it's not bothering people. But I, I think if anyone in the neighborhood were going to characterize our house as emitting the sounds of the neighborhood, it would be the <laughs> dog freaking out and getting excited about getting ready to go for a walk. That's true. He gets quite barky when we say those magic words. Um, so I thought this clip would be a fun opportunity to talk about how much musicians can make. Well, she lives in the Arconia, so $23,000 a month plus food. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's exactly, totally realistic for a musician. Yep, that's what you can expect to make. Bassoonists Everyone, make it big. <laughs> Everyone should immediately go buy the nearest bassoon. 
because uh, they're making bank. No, I'm kidding. They are not making bank. Um, as a musician, as most people know, it is really, really tough to eke out a living. Now, she has made it. She's telling us that she is the first chair oboist in the New York Symphony. I don't know what that is. <laughs> so first chair just means that you are considered the best at your particular instrument in this symphony. It can also kind of be a seniority thing, but typically they hold auditions. Oftentimes they're like blind behind a screen um, so that there's no bias about like, oh, this guy's my pal. I'm going to make him first chair. But yeah, first chair just means like you're you're really rocking it at your particular instrument. Carl, I did know that. I was making fun of Mabel, Selena Gomez. She Uh sounded like she didn't know. It's okay. You can pretend, sweetheart. It's okay. Thank you. So uh, that's what first chair means. And it is actually important to someone's salary. So first and foremost, it's really, really difficult to make it as someone who plays in a very prestigious symphony. They call it the City Symphony. I assume they're talking about the New York Philharmonic. That's the, the real world symphony that's considered, you know, one of the greatest symphonies in the world and certainly in New York. So someone who is a first chair musician of any kind in the New York symphony, it's hard to pin down exactly how much they're making. They don't really advertise that. What I can tell you is like the bottom and the top. So the base pay for a musician in the New York Philharmonic is going to be about $153,000 a year. That's how much the bass players make. So base as in B-A-S-E, as in the lowest amount that you can make, not B-A-S-S, as in the thing that's slightly bigger than a cello. Um, no, but that that is the lowest amount that you would make as an instrumentalist in the New York Philharmonic. Now, if you're playing like the Cleveland Symphony or like the Kansas City Symphony, some some like smaller city, I don't even know if these places actually have symphonies. Surely they Presumably, do. Presumably, yeah. But you're probably going to be making a lot less than that, maybe like 50K-ish. Um, I looked up for the Dallas Symphony, their base pay is about 80-ish per year. So it's not a bad living at all. That's a really great thing to aspire to, but those positions are considered pretty plum and they're hard to get. So to become first chair means you're considered even a cut above the already amazing musicians who are in the symphony and you're making a little bit more than that. So the highest paid person besides the conductor in a symphony is going to be the concert master. That is a, basically like your top violinist. This is the person who, if you've ever been to a symphony, they're usually the last person to walk out except for the conductor and they help the uh, symphony tune. And they also are often given a lot of solos. Violin is an instrument that very often has a lot of solos. So to be the best violinist, you really have to be super on top of your game. So the concert master for the New York Philharmonic is making $622,000 a year. That is an absurd bonus that I suppose they're a special musician. There's somebody that probably has the ability to go tour and do solo performances on their own. But I have to say, I don't like the elitism that goes along with being the concert master. Yeah. You think they're just the person who walks out and plays the first note well i mean they're they're <laughs> the first chair of the violins so what like what about the first chair flautist the first chair trumpet player i mean are they not less are they not special is their skill not hard to come by i mean i feel like they're all very difficult instruments to play although i did read that the bassoon which is what jan plays is considered the hardest woodwind instrument to play so way to go jan really rocking it with that bassoon 
Good job, Holly. <laughs> so uh, basically, most musicians are not going to be making a ton of money. To be the concert master at the New York Philharmonic, there's literally one of them. And you're talking about one of them at every like elite symphony. So that's not a realistic option if you're, you know, like putting a violin into your kid's hands, like you're going to be the next concert master. They got a long way to go. So it's a tough mountain to climb. So most musicians are making ends meet by supplementing their income. They're doing a lot of teaching. They're playing at like private events, weddings, things like that, because the amount that they're making at, you know, as a just average member of a symphony is usually not going to be a lot. And the plus side of being in a symphony is that it's usually not a full-time job, right? You have enough time to go teach um, private lessons, teach in a school, give performances. So it does leave you with more time to up your income. Okay. I was going to say at my schools in Louisiana, at both my middle school and high school, I I played the cello back in the day. Very, very poorly, I might add. (laughs) Um, the, the teachers at my school, I think they taught half days in the strings program, and they also were members of the symphony in the evenings. So, There you go. Um, I also was going to add that, uh, yeah, from a side gig standpoint, there definitely is that opportunity. Some of the more talented musicians, even when I was in high school, like the, I had a friend who played the cello, Linda, who was very, very good, and some of the other uh, violin and viola players that I knew, they were part of quartets that would occasionally go play at weddings and stuff. They'd be given the chance to to go perform and make a little money, even as seniors in high school. Yeah, it's a pretty cool thing to do as a kid. So musicianship is definitely not a surefire path to wealth. It's definitely not a surefire path to the Arconia. Oh my gosh. I I mean, she's, she's a mystery just like Selena Gomez, right? There must be something going on behind the scenes. Inherited wealth. Maybe she inherited the apartment. I mean, if she's making... I'm going to say, I don't know, like two to 300, maybe best case scenario for her as the first chair bassoonist, then she could afford to pay the building fees and the taxes. I mean, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could pull that off. That's yeah, no problem. It's not going to be uh, super comfortable, but you could do it. So maybe the apartment was given to her. Who knows? We never find out in the show, but it is very clear to me that she could not afford this place. Even as the concert master, right? Like the concert master couldn't afford to live there. I don't know. If they make $600,000 a year, they can afford that. So it's paid, what does that break down to a month after taxes? Yeah, uh, taxes. <laughs> so annoying. I was yeah. going to say, if it's $23,000, um, you're paying almost $300,000 a year in rent. But if you want to put all of your money towards rent, I mean, towards your housing situation... Yeah. Yeah, you're right, Carla. I didn't do the math and yeah. it's not realistic. No, I don't think she could make that work. Maybe if you're the conductor, like a worldwide famous conductor, then you could live in the Arconia. But just a plain old first year bassoonist, no freaking way, man. No freaking way. Well, I guess we just killed the sounds of the Arconia. <laughs> All right. So let's turn to our next clip. So as we've said, the main characters are doing a podcast about this crime that they're trying to solve. And podcasts are not totally free to start. And we know that Martin Short is really hurting for cash, so much so that he's going to his kids and asking for money. 
and he decides he's gonna try to find some investors. So, so Teddy, um, <clears throat> I'm doing a podcast, a true crime podcast about a murder that took place in our own building. Raise your hand if you just got chills. But and it isn't just the story of a man's death. It, it is about our a craving for truth, our hunger for justice. And that's why I think Dimas Delis is the obvious sponsor. Hold on. You're really asking me for money? Well, I wouldn't uh, put it like that. I, I, I'm just uh, saying that you can advertise uh, for the very low cost of $32,000. Oliver, motherfucker! Uh, come hell. on, Teddy. I know there's a part of you that misses me, that misses the magic we made. Oliver, I loved our shows. It's setting money on fire I don't care for. But listen, let's grab a drink sometime. Oh, I would love that. When is good? When it doesn't cost me 32K. <laughs> yeah, so he's a producer who helped him put on some Broadway shows in the past, but not so into paying for the podcast, huh? Yeah, he does not seem super jazzed about that. So Carla, we're podcasters. Are you looking forward to the time when you can go bring some statistics about our audience to potential sponsors and say, hey, would you, would you, for only $32,000, we can make your deli the presenting sponsor of today's episode? I mean, I I like a good deli. I would love it if any delis out there wanted to sponsor us. No, no, I'm asking if you want to go ask them. Because <laughs> that they seems just, like the really fun no, part. No, no, The goal is going to be for us to get so good and awesome that and popular they beg. that they're coming straight to us. Okay, mm-hmm. I like it. So podcasters can do okay if you have really good sponsors. Like, I think Joe Rogan is pretty widely accepted to be the most successful podcaster of the moment. He makes about $30 million a year on his podcast. Um, I think Dave Ramsey does about $10 million on his podcast. Interesting. So we've we're, got... We're close behind. I mean, We've got some work to do if we want to yeah. be at the tops of the personal finance space, Carla. <laughs> Good to know. So how much does it cost to start a podcast, Robert? So starting a podcast can be very inexpensive if you happen to have the right equipment. If you have like an iPhone which admittedly is not an inexpensive device in the first place. But if you have an iPhone or an iPad or an iMac or an i, uh, (laughs) (laughs) if you've got some sort of Apple product, you can start a podcast for basically $0, right? You can use GarageBand or iMovie and record your audio. If you're not going to try to interview a bunch of different people or you know, go take things in in a bunch of different places and you don't want to do a bunch of complex editing, just some minimal editing. Those tools are absolutely perfect. They'll, they'll do anything you want to do. And the only cost is going to be having a place to host your podcast, right? You're going to need a website to to host it so that you can get it out to the different distribution services. It's not super expensive at all to get started. Now, the bigger your podcast is, the more your expenses are going to be, right? If you want to, um, get fancier audio equipment, you certainly can, right? Microphones aren't free. Headphones that are different aren't free. The kind of mixing equipment to pull in the audio from different feeds isn't free. The software to go edit and manage stuff has a cost. If you're going to record what you're doing, you might need multiple cameras. If you're going to have staff, right? If you're Joe Rogan makes $30 million a year on a podcast, but Joe Rogan has a whole team of people. He's got producers who help him seek out advertisers, go book guests to be on the show to help with all the editing and all the follow-up. I mean, it's not a trivial activity to do that sort of stuff. So 
at some point when you grow and you want to outsource some of the more difficult tasks that take away from your prime time earning capabilities to other people, you have those expenses as well. Mm-hmm. Then again, almost nobody gets to that scale. Yeah, that's very true. It's definitely hard to make it in the podcasting world. I think part of that is because the barrier to entry is so low, right? It's pretty easy for anybody to just start talking into their voice recorder app on their iPhone and put out podcasts. So it's definitely a a slow, long, difficult climb to the top. So if you want to make money as a podcaster, I mean, step one, build a huge following. That's the requirement to make money on any of these kinds of things. But you don't have to do it in the same sort of awkward way that Martin Short is here, where you're going to somebody and asking them for a direct sponsorship. There are actually services out there that if you have enough of an audience, they will pair you with advertisers. Basically, they're a a podcast and advertiser matchmaking business, and they pay you based on the number of downloads you have. And the typical rates are on the order of about $25 per thousand downloads for a 60-second advertising clip and about $18 for a a 30-second advertising clip that's downloaded a thousand times. So the challenge, though, is these matchmakers don't do this for free. That's kind of the rate that the advertising company is going to pay. You're going to get about 70% of that. The matchmaker is going to get to keep about 30% of it. So if you have 5,000 listeners and you do 52 episodes a year, you could stand to gain about $3,200 if you were going to do 30-second ad rolls in each of your episodes. There you go. So not exactly setting the world on fire there. Uh, Can't afford the Arconia, that's for sure. No, um, but you know, if you have 500,000 listeners every episode, then that that turns into more like $300,000 a year. And if you have 500,000 listeners per episode, you're pretty popular, right? Yeah. You're, oh, yeah. you're making a difference. That's huge. Yeah, that's that's getting into like serial territory. Exactly. Yeah. So it is not it is not trivial to get up there and to be that popular. It's very, very uncommon. And once you do get that large, you probably no longer want to participate in that kind of advertising network. You probably want to have a, a producer or an ad buyer who works part-time for you and that is able to be like a very specific matchmaker with your podcast connecting you to the advertisers that are going to align with your listening base. Yeah, that seems reasonable to me. So lessons learned, being a musician and being a podcaster are not typically well-worn pathways to wealth, but I will say they also can be very rewarding careers. They can be fulfilling in a way that many other jobs aren't. So if that's something that you want to chase, I say go after it. All right, guys. Well, thanks so much for tuning in today. We really hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you haven't seen it, go check out Only Murders in the Building. Yeah, season two coming. It's going to be great. Yeah, it's a really fun show. All right. Thanks, everybody. We'll catch you next time. Oh, mother of God.